day, people. Welcome to the Cycling Tips podcast. I'm not Kaylee, as you can probably hear, but I am at the Tour de France, and I'm here with uh, fellow colleagues and a superstar. Let's start with my fellow colleagues first. Hello, Johnny. How are you doing, mate? Give us give us a bit of a round of where we are. Let's just get the old atmosphere going first. Good evening, Dave. We are sitting in the meatpacking district of Copenhagen which no longer packs the meat, but more serves beers and food at an exorbitant price. Good food, though. Good food, though, to a multitude of people. Um, we're sitting outside a salad falafel place. It's called, it's got the best name, Gaza Grill. Yeah, right next to a right next to a, an establishment called War Pigs, so that's sort of a bit unfortunate, but everyone seems to be rolling with it. Ronan. You're here as well, mate. Yep, and I just want to confirm that, or take Johnny up on one point, that the Copenhagen natives here do still pack the meat away in the meat packing district. <laughs> there is nothing but restaurants in this zone, and they're all full every night we come here. I think last night was the first night we actually got fed anything other than pizza because we were uh, able to find a seat and a restaurant that was still serving. Right, I'm going to introduce a superstar now, Philippe York. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, personally, you were somebody I looked up to when you were racing, and then when you when you left racing and did the old reviews for Pro Cycling magazine, you were possibly my favourite tech writer. Sorry, Ronan. Ever. Before my time. <laughs> what was it? I you don't know. remember him? No. Oh, you missed out, me man. You missed out. How are you doing? I'm okay. Despite being a vegetarian and sitting in the meatpacking <laughs> district, um, I'm glad I paid you to, to um, big me up there. That was really nice. How so, was your tour going so far? Because you arrived yesterday, didn't you? So my tour has started really well. Normally you get lost coming from the airport to the permanent or from the permanent to the hotel. None of that went wrong until I parked up. And I've spent probably half a day trying to avoid a massive fine that's going to arrive at the, the, the car hire place. So... Yeah, kind of traditional mess up on the first day of the Tour de France. Hey, expensive to SBS who you're over here working for as well, aren't you? Yeah. I'm, Not us, expensive to them. <laughs> I, th- I think the expense will go to the hire car and then the hire car will add more expense to, to whatever they send to us. So, yeah, somebody's not going to be happy and hopefully I can avoid it coming David off my Walsh credit card. Sunday Times. Yeah, he, the, he, the Sunday Times can probably afford yeah, it. I won't notice. All right, people, today on the pod, though, we have got, we're going to talk, obviously, tour, because it starts tomorrow. The first time trial kicks off at four o'clock, and it's quite pretty late, four till seven, last rider rolls out. But we're going to talk atmosphere in, in Copenhagen. We're going to talk tour contenders. We're also going to maybe get our picks for who we think's going to take the TT. Uh, talk over because we've got a few ins and outs there's been a few shakes up and then I want to talk press conferences because you've been to quite a few haven't you Johnny I've been to a couple and it's been sure. been some highlights hasn't there low lights and highlights but the low lights are often highlights too yeah right let's delve into well I suppose we've done the let's yeah let, let's delve let's delve into atmosphere in Copenhagen because so far the start's been well when I first turned up to the airport it seemed pretty low-key they only had a couple of flyers and a couple of posters on the wall but yesterday if anybody saw the the team presentation it was it was up there with some of the best wasn't it yeah i didn't see very much of it but and i wasn't expecting much i think when i came to copenhagen and i don't know why when i think back because it is obviously a study that's 
famous for sort of at least cycle commuting uh, and all the cycling infrastructure. But I, I just wasn't expecting the sort of tour reception that we've seen here. And I was sort of out the back at the mix zone waiting for the bikes to arrive. Um, and I'd heard that the presentation crowd was absolutely huge. And there was people telling me, well, oh, the first couple of stages are going to be bigger than even the Grand Depart that we've seen in the UK. And I was like, yeah, we hear that all the time. But actually, then when I seen the pictures of last night's crowd, it was it was pretty huge it was just it was a huge crowd huge atmosphere uh, I think we just about beat them to the restaurant last night hence why we got fed um, but it's in terms of the actual study as well it's been it's you know there's there isn't as much yellow or polka dot paint going on as I thought there might have been um, but there's certainly you know the, the Danish are looking forward to uh, watching the time trial and then stage two I think especially there are some more subtle touches. Um, yesterday we popped into a bookshop and there was one of Brian Holmes' bikes just in the window that he'd gifted to them. No way! Yeah, and we were asking... Because he's a local, obviously. Yeah, so don't know how that came about and we were like, do you, do you expect him to just, like, on on Saturday after the tour rolls out of Copenhagen, do you expect him to come pick it up? And she's like, well, hopefully not. You know, quite like it in the window. Like, it's hard to tell when you see the shop fronts around here whether the bike was already there before the tour or if it's been put in there, you know. It's, it's one of those... Did you get here in time to experience the, so the I, presentation? I saw it on television. Um, and it was really atmospheric. So it was a bit rock and roll, actually. You know, the, the, the amount of people there. And we had people... Oh, oh hang on. Should we call it croc and roll? What's Sorry, that? that e- EF. They had crocs on. Did they? Yeah. You should have to put um, a kroner in the jar, like, so this, first in the tour jokes. of the tour. Yeah, so the, yeah. The thing about that is, is that Denmark's quite stylish, and crocs are the, the pits of style. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... so Anybody wearing Crocs to, to that, that that's not a plus in any way. Even if they have got the Rafa logo slapped even, down even the side. Even if they've got palace all over them and, and you want it because it's a limited edition, there's no excuse for Crocs. There just isn't. Even if you've got, you know, speed play on the bottom or whatever. I saw a couple of pictures of the, some of the guys had stuck little things in their in the in the holes in their Crocs. Mm. Little kind of gems or whatever. Yeah. But, yeah, but that was sad. That's a sad moment. Cycling tips, not now, not ever, going to be sponsored by Crocs. <laughs> this, this podcast will never have a Crocs ad role. Well, the thing is that the, the Denmark's so stylish and, and everybody's kind of cool and happy and all the rest of it. And then you turn up with Crocs? Yeah. No, you don't see people with Crocs here. I remember the first time I came here for the world in 2011. Yeah, I was over here just as a, just a fan. Yeah, the, the year Mark Cav won. Yeah. And uh, I went out. I was in the city centre, went out one night and to a club, everybody seemed to be six foot three, blonde, wore leather jackets, dark denim jeans, and I I was I'm leaving there, I feel like a a hobbit like golem or something like this. It was like it really upset me. So you were this you were the scruffy ruffian? Yeah, it was as if yeah. It was yeah, very you, upsetting to say the least. You sure you didn't wander into a gay bar? Well, yeah, no, because there were a few females, but you never know. Won't be my first time. <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> okay, next, shall we move on to talk with that bombshell? Shall we move on to talk contenders? Shall we f- start with the man who took yellow past two years, a certain Mr. Pog? 
might be Sir Mr. Pog if he was British and he won another yep. couple tours, but he's Slovenian and he... The I don't mean, do sirs over there, do they? I, I don't know, they only, do, they only do sirs for people who have won singular Tour de France. If you've won multiple Tour de France, oh, you don't get a knighthood. Oh, I see. Well, I'm just basing it on the two British Tour de France, or oh, three British Tour de France winners yeah, as well. Uh, yeah, Sir Bradley Wiggins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Fumi's not got it. Has G got it? G's, has G nah. got it? No, I don't think so, but I would have thought Chris is four. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this a political show? <laughs> <laughs> no, so we're, we're talking, we're on, you're on dangerous ground here about who's got a knighthood and who's, yeah, yeah. And who's, who's just got a, a common regard an OBE or you know a few gold medals. But no, with, with Pog, I mean, any sort of smart money, any sort of, any any human being with a brain would it's hard to find an actual logical reason why he couldn't win but then you always say that about you know everyone, I remember the thing that keeps coming back to me is when Egan Bernal won his tour and immediately after that everyone sort of started oh, saying oh dinner's oh, arrived oh, our dinner has we've been erupted by halloumi hummus more hummus pita Blood bread beds. what we've got here chicken chicken and chips chicken in a basket no thank you Chicken and hummus, falafel. Oh, it's mouthwatering. I don't. Do we keep these these bits in usually, or do we cut it out? No, we keep this we bit keep in. It in. Yeah, okay. we'll we'll upset the viewers, but we won't eat because that really does upset. No, that is the yeah, that's the listeners. But yes, Pogacar. I mean, Pippi probably the best answer to this. What 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 are the reasons that he maybe doesn't win a third tour? <sighs> there are no real reasons. He he, Pogacar starts as the favourite because. Mm. Uh, he's a year older, a year stronger, a year smarter, um, but still has the same enthusiasm when he when he came in and he won, you know, in the last time trial in uh, 2020. So he's under a lot less pressure because he knows how it works and he's won the race. And the UAE team is just dedicated solely to him, so there's no internal friction there, which you're going to get at Jumbo between Vingegaard and Roslik. So Bogacar's in the a step above, you know, at the start where Roslik is and where the um, Vinicard is. For me, I, you know, we have to make our picks as, you know, pick your stage one winner, pick your overall winner. Um, and I hadn't done it because it's been pretty busy here, but Mikey, our social media guy, reached out to me on WhatsApp and he's like, I need your picks. So I straight away went Ghana for stage one. And I didn't want to pick Pogaccia for the overall because I like to, I like the underdog a little bit. Mm. But when I thought about it, you know, I started thinking about the time trials, and he can time trial just as well as most of the other GC contenders. Perhaps Roglic is a tiny bit ahead of him, but Bogaccia on his day, as he proved in 2020, can can win a time trial. And then I was thinking, well, what what else could go wrong? In the mountains, he's as strong as any of the rest of them. And on the cobbles on stage five, which could be a potential hazard, you know, he proved in the Tour of Flanders this year that he can handle the cobbles fine. Now, different story between Flanders and Roubaix cobbles, but still no, he has a team around him that can position him well for the cobbled sectors, and he's proved himself that he can uh, handle that. So it's it's kind of hard to, you know, other than the dreaded C word that could strike any team and already has struck Pogaccia's team, it's hard to see what can really trip him up. And as much as I wanted to pick Vinigo, because I think he, you know, he could struggle with the difficult second album sort of syndrome, but I do think he will go well. I think he will have, you know, had huge pressure, but also huge focus on performing well in a grand tour that starts in his home country. But it's just very, very difficult to see how anybody can beat Pogaccia 
at the moment, given given the the domination that we've seen from him throughout this season so far. Do you feel that even though the teams had a quick change up at the last moment, what with Trenton getting COVID and then they're bringing in Hershey, do you feel that could have not affected the dynamic, but affected how they're going to approach the race at all? So when you when you look up the, the lineup between UAE and Jumbo, Jumbo have come with a with a set of riders for the first week. So to get through the windy stages we're going to get in Denmark and then the, the stages which are typical of four days at Dunkirk. So up until the Planche de Belfi. So they've got half their team which is going to handle that for, for Rojlik and for um, Vinigo to stay out of trouble. Whereas UAE only really had Trentin to do that role. So now they've lost Trentin, they're in a slightly weaker position for the first week. But after that first week and they head into the Alps, they're, they're slightly stronger than Jumbo are. So it, it, as long as Bogacar doesn't fall off and hurt himself, which, which isn't likely because when he falls, he, he bounces well. So he doesn't hurt, you know. So is that he, something you pick up on then? Because that's so, something I would so, say. So there's, there's certain riders who, when they fall off, hurt themselves, and there's others when they fall off, they seem to kind of bounce and just get up. Like, like so, so, judo. So, <laughs> so last year, when all those crashes happened in the first stage, and a whole lot of riders were broken, Bogacar actually fell, but he he bounced. He didn't hurt. He he, he you know he, he lost some skin, but he wasn't damaged. What and do it, you put that down to then? Just, you know, sometimes guys are just lucky. Drinks get, loads of milk. You, so, you, <laughs> so you have guys like Geraint Thomas who fall off and hurt themselves all too often. Like Richie Porte does. Yeah. He falls off, he hurts himself. So you just think he doesn't bounce well. You won't think any of these guys, how skinny they are, would bounce well. Well, that's actually something I was going to say there is that, first of all, I... It's you know, you, you might think that it comes down to luck, but you do also learn to crash the right way and fall the right way. That That's something you try to do as you're crashing. But Pogaccia, he isn't quite as skinny, so to speak, as some of the other riders. I know he's probably at his lightest weight, but he doesn't look as gaunt as mm-hmm. some of the other riders that we see. And do you think does that play any part? Uh, he's still flexible. So if you look at, if you compare... Bogatra to Rojlik. Rojlik is rigid on his bike, so he's really fixed into his bike. He, he he has no kind of... He doesn't look nice on his bike, whereas if you look at Bogatra, he's kind of fluid and it flows, and okay, it's not always elegant, but it looks relaxed, whereas Rojlik is quite tense. So, And when you're tense and you, fo- and you fall, because you've tensed up, it tends to hurt you more because instead of t- the, the impact kind of spreading through your body it all focuses on the impact point so you tend to break so so there's that tension you know just from the position on his bike which is going to affect if he falls off and then and then there's also the thing about because the guys nowadays tend to do a lot of training camps they're not used to riding in the peloton anymore so they lose that that interaction with riders who are who are aggressive to them because when they go on the training camp nobody you know you don't bump each other into corners and outbreak each other and you know steal somebody's position so you're all friendly but then you get put into something like this rammed rum, you know dodgy corners with 180 other maniacs and, and guys that come underneath you in the corners uh, you know somebody hits you from behind and they're in the breaking zone and there's all manner of stuff happens 
and um, and that affects how you can stay upright quite often. So do you, uh, do you think that like skill level has dropped over the past couple of years now? Like they do go to these altitude camps multiple times a year. You hear them, hear them going start the season before um, like. It, even before Paris-Nice, before the Dauphiné, before the, like, in between the Dauphiné, not in between the Dauphiné, but before the Dauphiné, then from the Dauphiné, they come to the tour. Do, do you think, because in, in your day, I'm guessing you, it was start Paris-Nice, finish at Lombardy, do Paris-Nice, whatever, the Vuelta back then was after so, that, into the yeah. tour. So before you went from one race to the next, and you learned that... And the start of the year, you didn't have the skill to ride in the peloton that well. So there'd be a lot of crashes like there was going to be here in the first couple of days until you adapt to how everybody moves. Because certain riders are, are, you know, they brake sharply, whereas others will kind of ease the brakes on. And now with discs, because they tend to be noisy, that has everybody, you know, kind of alert to, to that braking noise. Whereas before, with rim brakes, are slightly quieter. Um, so... The noises that you're going through, that you hear when you're in the middle of the pack, are probably more intensified now. There's disc brakes, and these tend to squeal a lot more. Interesting. So all, Interesting. all that all that stuff matters, and and when it's so, especially at the tour, it's noisy the whole day. You know, so you've got the cars coming past you, the crowds who've been waiting for three hours for you to come along, all screaming when you come along, and you go along in that that bubble of noise like you've been at a rock concert for the whole day. For three weeks. For three weeks, and you end up slightly frazzled. So you're trying to trying to hear that, and you're trying to hear the noise of breaking and, and people shouting about holes and moving up and screaming at each other, abuse the whole thing. Um, so yeah, and and you learned it's a skill that you learn. Some people are really good at it, you know, they come have it naturally, and others you have to kind of work on it. You know, uh, when to break into the corner, the certain guys you can go past in the breaking zone, certain guys you can't because they, they get a wobble on it a certain you know stage of the, the, the transition into braking and then kind of halfway around the corner. So you can break the whole thing down into um, you know, different zones of in the braking zone and the accelerations and the whole thing when you get really nerdy about it. Just, just on this, Bogaccia has 24 days of racing this year mm-hmm. and Roglic has 26 days of racing this year. How does that compare to you know, 10, 20 years ago? What, what, how, how many race days were you coming into the Tour de France with? So... I remember I counted the race days. Um, which one was it? It'd be the first year I was at Panasonic. I did 65 days racing in Spain <laughs> <laughs> before the Tour de France. Holy moly. I remember did one you, year I did 71 days of racing and I was ready to be, uh, yeah, laid out. I, I was, <laughs> that was at the end of the season. So I and came, I was, came to the race with 65 days racing solely in Spain. Before the Tour. That's before the Tour. <laughs> What would it be at the end of the season? And were then? you going well, or were you tired, or no? I was fr- after ten days, I fell apart because I was, you know, worn out. Wow! <laughs> but it's so, so 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 nowadays with, with the training camps, it's better because the 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 man management, you know, the energy, the expenditure is much better understood. Whereas before, if you're going well, you just get sent to the next race mm. until you cracked. So you could find yourself at races where you weren't competitive, but you're there to do a job for somebody else. So is there a balance then now that there's, like, refining them skills 
and getting not turning up to a race absolutely cooked. Is there, do, do you think they've got to a point where there's the there's the, the correct balance? So, 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 so anything dealing with the human body and human beings and the and the kind of psychology of competition, you, you're managing, you know, expectation, ego, ambition, but also freshness of your form. So until you've learned, if you're doing a coaching role, until you've learned who you're coaching and looking after, what level of freshness they go into a race with is, is going to have the best outcome, then it's kind of a guessing game. Because people are complicated. You know, there's no standard issue. So somebody, say, could go from do, just doing the Dauphiné and come to the start of the tour with no racing in between, whereas others will need maybe one, two, three one-day races just to kind of fill in that gap, just to keep a bit of sharpness, but also allow enough recovery that, they, that their form is on the way up instead of on the way down. And you also have to calculate the freshness that you start the tour with. Are you, because the level is so high, are you going to get better if you come here at 99%? Are you going to discover that 1% during the first week? Or is the 99% going to mean you get murdered every day and you start on the downhill because you're tired and you're not really competitive? And we often see, like, in the Vuelta, they start with super hard stages early on and the riders want to be coming in in their best condition to perform from the start. Yeah. If you were coming into this tour, what way would you want to be approaching it? Because the first day, the first few days are so technically difficult that you need to be in the condition to be fighting to be in the front. But the main difficulties in terms of traditional GC difficulties are later in the race. So, so for this tour, the, the, the GC race starts after a week at Planche de Belfi, but it doesn't really start there because that's not a, a real mountain stage. It's not three mountains. It's just one mountain. So that's just a... a it so, kicks off at the bottom of the last hill. And if, if you're kind of average, you'll lose a minute, but that's not fatal. But there's also the the skill level you need to man, to maneuver yourself through the first week, especially when there's going to be pave, and that's where the loss of Matteo Trentin for UAE is quite important because they they lose that that Pogaccio loses the guide that, that gets him through the, the the kind of northern stages. So you you need somebody that you follow. In my case, as a climber, I would I would have a designated rider I followed as much as I could. And, and try and stay with them as they went through the, you know, okay, we have to move up now and you would move up with them and they would do it skillfully whereas I would get stuck and they would have to come back for you. Because stage two is, it hug, not hugs the coastline, but out into the coastline and then they go across that 19, 19 kilometre bridge. We had somebody pop over it on an e-bike the other day and it took them 40 minutes. So for the wow. pro peloton, it's going to be like, what, 19, 20 minutes, something like that, which is... And as Ron and I were talking just the other day about there's uh, 100k before that, and it's good. It, even if it's mildly windy, it could cause havoc. And then once you're on that bridge, what what are your views of that bridge? Could it be a, not a decisive, but could it be um, a place where things could get messy? It's it's one of those things where you're going to have the team briefing in the morning. And every team is going to say the same thing to all their riders. We need guys in the first 20. And there's 180 guys trying to get into the first 20. So it's like a race finished into the section. And then it might slightly calm down a bit, unless one of the big teams, like Quick Step, hit the front in the side wins. Then there'll be bodies everywhere. Because 
the, the, the kind of Spaniards don't don't like side winds, and the guys who are not really that motivated for, for being in the gutter at 60k an hour, they're not you know they're not going to. You, you're not into that kind of stuff. Um, so if you're riding GC, you'll need at least two guys with you if you don't want to take any wind. Yeah. So you, you'll need at least two strong riders capable of of riding that you know 20 minute section you you use one guy for 10 minutes and then you use the other guy for 10 minutes you don't you know it's their job to for those those 10 minutes that's their job can you see like a situation where the teams that aren't here for gc though but are here for stage wins really mixing it up on them first couple of stages and causing havoc for the gc riders yeah You'll have, to, you'll have teams now like um, Bike Exchange who've only got a sprinter so they want to put at least three, four guys in that front 20 just in case it splits and then you have Ineos who don't have a, a rider at the level of Pogacar and Rojlik so they'll so they want Ghana on the front you know with, with Adam Yates and Danny Martinez on the wheel Geraint Thomas they can leave to his own devices because he's strong enough to ride in the wind but you know for Yates and Martinez, they'll they'll need you know two riders that are going to guide them through that section. Otherwise, if it really does kick off, then they're toast. You know they'll be in the second group, and if they're in the second group and the other guys spot it, they'll just you'll just keep riding, just to you know just to tire them out, even if they come back. This is a sorry, go on. I think the difficulty though is that in cross run and echelon racing like that, you can't ease back or you can't wait for the finish if you want to win a stage you have to go on effectively go on the attack you have to ride in the echelons you have to push the pace because otherwise you're going to get yeah. you know battered back into the peloton and somebody else will split it so any team who have any sort of ambitions GC ambitions stage one ambitions uh, points jersey ambitions whatever they might be any team and even riders who just want to get safely through the stage they have to fight to be at the front yeah, and, and that's where the chaos comes from is that everybody has to be at the front regardless of their Tadej Pogaccia or their Lantern Rouge yeah. now we, we touched on Ineos there now as a GC team they don't seem as as dominant as they have previously and it looks like they're going into it with kind of a, a trident a two pronged attack three pronged attack with uh, with you got Thomas Yates and Martinez, how do you think that's going to pan out this year, guys? With uh, are they a team that's going to really threaten for the for the GC, or is it kind of a, again a little bit of a, a messy squad without a direction? It was. This is what Ronan told me the other day, but I'll say it on his behalf. He was saying that if Garrett Thomas makes it through this perilous first week, then the universe will sort of be shining on him. This wasn't this was me you were talking to. Who was I talking to? Someone. Maybe I was talking to some higher being. But anyway, they're saying that... <laughs> it's the tour. Maybe you were dreaming of me. <laughs> it's, already, it's already minus one day of the tour and I'm gone. Um, yeah, if you get to that first week, then maybe the universe is just so benevolent that it's written in the stars that, that Thomas wins the other jersey. But that is probably fanciful thinking. Because he has just taken the Tour de Suisse. Yeah, but he didn't race against... Pogacar, Ringo, yeah. or and it was Roglic. a and that was toward the COVID. There, there's a and, lot of riders. Dropped and he did out. admit in the press conference. We asked him straight up, like not not did you avoid them, but does it give you an advantage if you don't get beaten by ten minutes to all of them? And he's like, well, yeah, you know, it'd be hard to go through that once before and then head into the big one, knowing that they'd already done that to you in a week. 
I, I think we might see. I don't know if I'm being hopeful here or what, but I think we might see some new tactics from Ineos in this tour. The kind of riding that we've seen in Giro 2020 and Spring Campaign 2022, where they were aggressive rather than trying to dictate the pace the way they did in the Giro recently, that eventually you know, they, they came up against one rider stronger than the rider that they were setting the pace for for three weeks, and ultimately they lost to GC because of that. But I think going into this Grand Tour, where Carapaz was arguably the strongest rider in the Giro, certainly ahead of time most people would have predicted that, and they maybe thought that was the best way to race. Going into this tour, I don't think there's anybody who would really say any of us have the strongest rider. I think any of us themselves might even say we don't have the strongest GC contender in this. G event. said that. He was like, we don't have a rider on that so, level. So what so do you do in that situation? To, you have to yeah. either wait for other riders to drop out, which nobody wants to see, or you have no. to be, you have to do something to shake up the race to, to you know, bring it bring it into your favour. If you haven't got the legs to do it, you have to find a tactic to do it. And they've also got uh, Steve Cummins this year as a, the DS, which is a, a complete departure so they'll, from... So will all be sitting at the very back then waiting for the breakaway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He'll admit he used to sit back there until he was needed. The, the, the thing is with, with, with Ineos, they, the guys are trained for GC racing, so they're not trained to go in the, in the attacks and in the breaks. So they don't have the riders who in this first week that's coming up that are going to win from the break so that's going to be all those Belgians and, and Dutch guys that, you know, that are strong enough to survive on the flat and still be fast at the end Ineos don't have those guys they have the guys that in the second and third week they go in the break and they're allowed to because you know they're not in the GC anymore and everybody's worn out and they're still okay, they're still kind of reasonably okay but you know they're not none of them are sprinters you know, to, fa- to win from a group of five, six. So so they're in that kind of difficult position where the guys are trained to ride GC, but they've not got the strongest rider anymore. So then they're thinking, okay, then we're going to try and, you know, split the race in the side win. But that's a really difficult thing to do in the first week of the tour. It's difficult to do, but if you've got Filippo Ganna, it becomes considerably easier to do. <laughs> if you can get Filippo Ganna with clear air in front of him uh, and one or two riders behind him, there's yeah, but the, the, the thing is, is, you know, you look at Quick Step and you look at you, the lead-out teams for for Bike Exchange. They've got two, three guys. Mm-hmm. Maybe not at the individual level, but you know, if you've got two guys swapping turns bes- beside Ghana, it does, he's not going to ride away from you. And and when you're a climber and you're, and you're on somebody who's, who's as strong as that, and you're on the wheel, you're sprinting to stay there. So there's only so f- they can't yeah. really go their full maximum because they blow you out the wheel. Because you don't have that power, you know, you you can sustain, you know, maybe 450 watts for a couple of minutes, whereas Ghana's cruising at 450. <laughs> he's planning to do 450 for an hour. <laughs> you know, so he's, you know, so then when he steps it up to seven, 800, you know, and he's doing 65k an hour in the flat. That's when you start crying, I suppose. You, you, you're on the front of the saddle sprinting to stay on the wheel and, the guy, and those guys look round at you to see you're still there. So they're not flat out. And, yeah. and, and it's part of that kind of GC leadership that you have to get used to you know those guys looking after you and kind of shepherding you through those those moments it's also worth noting that a lot of the bikes we've seen this week especially from the likes of Mads Pedersen who who is gunning for stage two to take the old jersey in his home country these guys are riding 56 chain rings on the front and 11 and 10 tooth sprockets at the back so yeah we spoke with Louis Mentors today and he was saying he's actually upped his chain ring size from a 53 to a 54 yeah. just purely because every 
everybody else is on 56. Yeah. Like all the big guys, all the powerful guys are on 56. He's like, if I don't have it, I'm out the derriere of the peloton rather quickly. Yeah, yeah, I would do that. I would normally ride a 52 chain ring. And then when I come to the tour, I ride 53 or 54. Just because you need that half a gear slightly bigger because the speed's ma massive, well not massively, but you know, it, it goes up. Uh, and eventually you kind of run out with leg, run out of leg speed and you use your strength just to stand on the gear. It'll still come back to that same old problem where there can only be who, whichever team happens to get two or three riders working together at the front will, you know, put the rest of the peloton in, in the gutter, as they say. In the gutter. And then they're, no matter how strong you are, if you miss the split, you're not riding across a split on your own while there's three or four or five of the strongest riders in the world sharing a workload together in the, in the front edge. So I'm like, once that gap opens, you know, unless, unless there's a change of direction in the road, it's very difficult to work your yeah, way back. You can't close the gap at let's, six, let's 60k talk. an hour. You just can't. You know, you, the gap only gets bigger. It only gets bigger, and, and it's a kind of natural selection because the guys in the front have to go, have to do turns on the front, otherwise they won't stay in the line. So everybody's gone through. Even if you're sprinting to go through, you you, you have to stay there. It's the most counterintuitive thing ever because no matter how much you're suffering, you have to keep riding through because the second you stop riding through, you're in the gutter without the shelter from the wind when you're coming back in the lane. And the amount of mental stress that it causes you <laughs> is probably more painful than the... the, the, the oh, I miss it so much. <laughs> because when you come back and you've got to get back in the line moving forward and not be in those guys that are fighting in the gutter, you have to fight to get back in the line that's moving up. But because you're not naturally doing that, because you know you're not Belgian, you're not Dutch, yeah. you don't have that skill. So one of your team, if you've got a teammate to look after you, they let you in. So then you're doing more turns than everybody else because there's always somebody letting you in. Man, because obviously you you were a climber back in your day, King of the Mountains jersey in 84. Yeah, How you, have to, you have to keep going through. And it's one of the things that you learn when you go to a team which rides. Like if you went to Quickstep as a, as a climber, you would learn that you can't be in that group where you quite often see Peter Sagan, you know, kind of dangling in the gutter yeah. and, and still in the in the shelter. You you see guys like, you know, and it was noticeable with Egan Bernal at, at Paris-Nice when it was windy. He was riding through more than everybody else just because he was nervous about getting stuck with the Sagans in the gutter. Because Sagan will be, whoever you are, Sagan will be sheltered behind you. You know, you could be on the edge of the road and Sagan will be on the grass. I, I bet you there's a rule in the peloton that it's better to be the wheel behind the wheel behind Sagan than the wheel behind yeah. Sagan. Yeah. Because whoever's behind Sagan is out in the wind. He is as close <laughs> to the gutter as you can possibly be. So if you're the wheel behind the wheel behind, you can you'll get plenty of shelter. And also, if I remember rightly, there was a secret pro article that said you don't want to be behind him because he's that skilled that he he can sort of turn his brain off. Have have a chat, have a cigarette, have a drink, have a beer, whatever, and avoid obstacles at like the last split second. And then you're straight on top of it because he's, he's managed to get around it like like lightning. Yeah. And you, even pros don't have the same skills as him. No, it comes down to that thing where you have guys who are naturally skilled. And, and the, the case of Sagan is he's naturally skilled at it. So a bit like Pidcock, he's naturally skilled yeah. because he comes from that kind of background of, you know, messing about as a kid. And those guys, you know, they, they, they come to, to say there's a hole in the road or a drain cover missing or something. And they see it, you know, in half a second before they're going to hit it and they just jump over it. 
Whereas you come along and, you, and you're kind of groveling a little bit and you head down and you just hit it with both wheels. And if you're lucky, you don't puncture both. And if you're lucky, you don't fall off. But somebody's going to fall off because you, you hit it, the guy behind hits it, and then you hear the noise of the guys on the ground and then there's a split and then the whole thing goes to chaos. There's actually a writer I wanted to ask you about is what impact do you think Thomas Pitcock will have on the NAOS team? Is he there to win stages or is he there to do a, a job? Or, you know? It's an interesting question because I looked at the pre-selection and I thought Ethan Hayter or Tom Pitcock are the guys that they're going to have to choose between. And for me, to bring Ethan Hayter was a better choice because he can go on the break and win from the break. Whereas when Tom Pitcock goes in the break, because he's Tom Pitcock and he's just below that level of um, Van der Poel and, and Wout Van Aert, nobody's going to ride with him because they know how fast he is at the end. And stage so, one time trial as well. So Hater had a shot at that. You know, so, so Hater was... I would have taken Hater for those reasons that he can do the bunch sprint, whereas Tom Pitcock wasn't that great at, at Tour um, Switzerland. But saying that the Tour de France is all about exposure and Tom Pidcock is a bigger name so he'll get more media attention well this is interesting because I was going to ask you there just are, are we saying any of us are here chasing stage ones and then secondly are we saying they're chasing exposure as well because typically <laughs> media exposure hasn't been their number one objective they're not really publicizing a brand in the same way as other teams have to sort of really get their brand's name out there they were the only team to do an in i'm pretty sure they were the only team to do an in-person press conference this year which baffled everyone because even before the pandemic they were so health conscious and if they'd been allowed to do not in-person press conference before they would have chosen it as well now so let's, that was let's talk about that press conference because Pippa, you picked up on body language at that press oh, yeah. conference didn't yes. you so the, the, the when the Ineos guys all you know they they took their positions in the chairs and I don't know how, how significant it is, but when you study body language on the, on the kind of in team interactions, you know, the, between the riders, Garen Thomas was the only one who picked up his chair and moved it slightly away from the other guys. And, and it's hard to say if that's because he's from an older generation, he's from a generation before, you know, the other guys are, are 10 years younger than him. Um, and he's not, you know, he's not part of their little group or He's slightly uncomfortable of being team leader when he knows that you know it, it might not work out for him. So, so, so there's, there's that slight kind of not kind of hesitation between the the group. Is there any other body language that you've picked up uh, at, at the race so far? Any any other any other riders? Any other any other teams? Any other well, for instance, Jumbo, Jumbo Visma, the the the. Roglic and Vingegaard there. Have you sort of noticed how they uh, are interacting? It looks like they're going to run with Roglic as team leader yeah. and Vingegaard is going to be the, the big support for him. Um, that would make sense because Roglic, this is probably his last... No, I wouldn't say it's his last chance, but you know, as the years go by and Pogacar gets stronger, Roglic is on the, starts to go downhill. You, you go downhill, you know, from... 32-33 so then you know it makes sense that they go with Rosley because he's in a position of, of leading the race so he understands the pressures um, but that whole dynamic of having two riders of almost the same level in a team that's quite hard to manage it's, it never works out well you know you look back in history you know you take two leaders of same stature 
and the egos and the ambition and the kind of interpersonal tensions always work out you know, poorly in the end. What then when you add a green jersey contender into that mix also? I mean, how, how do you control the? How do you control that that ambition that Van Aert comes with, and and not just his expectations, his personal expectations, but the public's expectations. So, if if Van Aert doesn't win a stage in the first week, the Belgian press will be all over him. So he has that. He has to win one of the first stages. I, I'd say, if he hasn't won a stage by Arenberg, then the, the the tension wraps up completely for those guys. Let's let's talk about outside contenders, wild cards. Actually, there's one right there I wanted to ask about. Given everything we just spoke about, do you think could this be a year for Quintana again? Because he's so good in the crosswinds. We, we've seen him time and time again, Paris perform excellently in echelons. And then we've got such a difficult final week that would arguably play into his hands as well. I think the brutal answer is no. <laughs> you know, the, the, the Tour de France is quite special. It always comes down between two riders and the strongest one always wins. And when, when we set up from here, everybody is talking about Pogaccio being the strongest rider. But he also comes with, in a more relaxed position than the challengers because he's been there and he's done, he's done it twice. So I'd say the kind of first two places of... of the two Slovenians, Bogacar and, and, and Rojlik. The other guys are looking at a podium place at best. And then who do you choose, you know, between those Vlasov, um, Ben O'Connor, you know, Vingigo, you know. They, so it depends on how much work that, I mean, you guys must have a, an opinion as well. O'Connor said beforehand that he's aiming for a top five. So that kind of just goes to show sort of how outsider... Well, you can see his is, confidence you know. just rose after last year's fourth place. Like, not just his public yeah. image, but his confidence at races, racing rose. He said it himself in uh, several press conferences. <laughs> Let's talk about stage one then. Let's have some picks for stage one for the uh, that 13 kilometre time. So it's not a prologue. It's a bit too long for a prologue, isn't it? Well, not, I'll start with not a pick for the win, but a pick for two riders to look out for who you might not have thought of, but definitely Mads Pedersen is is going to be really going for this time trial, I think, because he wants to keep himself in contention to take a jersey the next day. And when we seen him line up at uh, Tour of Belgium a couple of weeks ago, he was riding in a different helmet from the rest of the team, which nobody on Trek Segafredo uses anything non-sponsor correct. But that indicated to me that he is... He's been to either a wind tunnel or some sort of testing to optimise his position and he's going all in for this time trial and he's in fabulous form and we know he wants the jersey so I think he's going to go and give us a time trial that we might not always have expected from him and the other one is Michael Matthews who I think will be thinking along the same lines and when I seen his bike at the bike exchange truck today they were doing a lot of things to that bike that they don't normally do to Michael Matthews' time trial bike uh, wax chain all new tyres, all sorts of stuff that they had to cover up. Because um, the team has said that they've spent a lot of time this year with Giant. They've really, really invested in helping develop the equipment that they're using. Unfortunately, they don't have any new time trial equipment just yet. But I think still in all that, that 
plays through like you know if they're focusing on aerodynamics on their bikes for road racing they're also going to be looking at it with clothing with helmets with positions with everything that they do so two riders to look out for more so than two riders to win I'm interested in this helmet this the, the, the non-approved helmet Wait, tell us he more he was using a I think it's a casco um Looks very much like that helmet you were trying on yesterday, Dave. Um, we can talk about that now because we it's can been talk video. about that new specialized TT5 helmet that um, Star Wars copywriters may have an issue with. Uh, looks very, very Darth Vader-ish. Or Alien versus Predator. <laughs> or Alien versus Predator. But the Casco one is the same sort of idea where the 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 lens on the front of it or the visor on the front of it sort of is in an arrow shape as well, whereas you know the, some of the rest of them are just a, a flat visor that. Casco one is very much like that, and it's also a very pointed uh, tail knit, unlike the specialized one that we've seen published today. That's one of the things about the tour is all the new stuff comes out. Oh, yes. Tell me about it. So <laughs> we'll get we'll get to that in a minute at the nerd alert at that the okay. oh, the nerd nugget. Sorry, nugget, yeah. the nerd nugget at the end. Oh, I'm well, gonna go on. As for who well who are the actual contenders? Yeah, I think White Van Art and Philippe Gana Gana being probably top favourite five star favourite Wout van Aert close behind him but Matthew Vanderpool could also uh, do something in this uh, Stefan Bissiger should be up there um, there's there, there's a strong time trial field in, in this race so of Casper Asgreen home, home rider as well will be I think highly motivated for the time trial and can do a good time trial of that sort of distance when he's in form so it's it's hard to pick a winner but it's also hard to look past Ghana I think okay before we go any further with more talk coverage I'm going to throw over to Leah Thomas from Trek Segafredo who's currently at the Giro Donna she's uh, recently crowned USA team uh, USA time trial champion and she's going to be doing a, a, a diary for us from that race so over to you Leah Hi everyone um, this is Leah Thomas writing for Trek Segafredo um, I am going to be sharing with you a little bit about my experience at the Giro this um, next 10 days 10 stages uh, today I just finished up massage we had a short 4.8 kilometer prologue um, which you would think is just like a quick little little event but actually is um, one of the longer days especially for the staff but also for the riders um, we left the hotel around 10 a.m this morning and got on our tt bikes and pre-rode the course it was pretty straightforward there were was a tighter right hand turn a swooping left turn and a U-turn. And other than that, it was pretty much flat out um, along the coast here. Um, so it was good to see see the course before it started. Um, but after we pre-rode that, um, the start times are so spread out that it really is a game of hurry up and wait. So I wasn't um, gonna grow race until one of the later riders. So, um, I had a couple hours to just hang out in the bus and, um, wait for the time to pass. And then, um, really got ready and got my head in the game to, to do my best prologue. Um, I'm not a huge prologue rider, but I find them really fun to, uh, try to give them a go. And I think one of the most 
interesting parts about a prologue is every single one I finished and I'm like, darn, I wish I could have a do over. Um, I feel like I learn a lot each time I go, but this prologue was pretty special because I got to wear my new skin suit from Santini with the U S flag on it. And, um, I was really proud of that time trial and just really honored to be able to, to wear that suit. And so, um, putting it on for the start was, was a special moment for me. Um, and one that I will, will keep close. Um, overall, uh, the prologue was, um, interesting trek. We did great as a team. We got, um, four riders in the top 10 and maybe five in the top 12. I haven't seen the, the full results, but, um, we had a really strong showing. Um, the wind definitely picked up in the second half, which, um, was a little bit of an adventure, but, um, we all did really great. So I think as a team, we're really excited to move forward into the, the other stages of the race. Um, tomorrow's a pretty flat stage and most likely we'll end in a bunch sprint. So hopefully we can get Elisa, um, into good position and, and she can do her awesome sprinting from there. Um, I'm really excited to be at this Giro. Um, it's been a long spring for me. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm coming back from a disc replacement surgery in my neck from February, and it's really put a hamper on my training, and um, it just has been a longer road back um, than expected with a lot of compensation injuries and, and just trying to get all those muscles working again. Um, I was really fortunate to have some good time at home with some good training, but I am now back in Europe without um, the physical therapy I'm I'm accustomed to. So for me, I'm a little bit apprehensive for this Giro mixed with the excitement because I think my Giro will be dependent on um, making sure I can handle my neck. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Um, but regardless of how that is, I really look forward to um, supporting my team in any way possible and um, really looking forward to the next stages. Um, the Giro is always a little bit of an adventure with a lot of unknowns and in a certain way that makes this race really exciting. So it's really exciting to be here. I hope to share more of this journey with you. Um, some of the highs and the lows throughout the, the coming um, nine stages and just a little bit about the what's going on behind the scenes here so i hope you guys will listen over the next little bit and yeah thanks for following along right welcome back there we are cheers leah now i'm gonna throw you off to johnny because you're the man who's been at the press conferences. There'll be a few interesting, not developments, but situations there, aren't there? A few comical, a few um, pressure. All comical. Yeah, not so much. Yeah, like a little bit pressure cooker. One good, one bad. We'll start with a good one. Yes. Uh, Dutch journalists was, they were talking at the UAE team Emirates press conference. They were talking about the COVID situation and whether Trenton had maybe been in contact with them. And they said, no, a Dutch journalist steps up and asks whether Tadej Pogacar had been sleeping with Rafael Maika. <laughs> At which point, Tadej Pogacar throws his head back and cackles like I've never heard him before. Like He's usually quite reserved, quite quiet, quite understated. And he couldn't believe what had been asked. And it was, it was one of those beautiful, like, lost in translation moments that often happens in the press room when 
English is sort of everyone's second language, myself included a lot of the time. Um, and that was magnificent and really sort of brought a shine to what is often quite a, a, a drab affair often with UAE team Emirates press conferences, I will admit. The second was Bahrain Victorious, where we didn't really have a press conference. They, they've had the, the raids at the hotels, the French police are searching high and low for, for anything. Um, they start, the performance manager started with a quick statement saying they would love to give us an update, but they don't have an update. And they're sort of asking the, the French prosecutors for more information on what exactly it is they want. Um, at which point they threw over to the journalists and but we were told that no one's allowed to talk about the, any of the stuff that's been going on. So no one really had any more any more questions and the press officer said, Right, well, I guess I guess that's it then and it lasted maybe five minutes from start to finish. And there was a loud buzzing noise throughout it all on the call, so kinda of summed up the situation. A lot of tension there then. Yeah, it was quite it was quite as it's like watching one of those sitcoms where everything's going wrong, and, but you're powerless to fix it. But entertaining nonetheless, you have to give them credit for that. Talking about entertaining, throughout the tour, we're going to have a little bit of, bit of culture like we have every other year from Joe Say. So, to start, the, uh, the, to start this year's, I think we're going to call it O's course, off course, O'Core. I think we're going to call it O'Core, off course. We're going to throw off to Joe Say, who's going to be talking about the royal family here in Denmark and something about a thousand euros or something. Anyway, over to you, Joe Say. Copenhagen, or Copenhagen, as the Danish say, is the capital city of Denmark. Denmark is not a very big country, but the Danes have a love for cycling bigger than many others. Expect this Tour de France start, the first the country hosts, to be one big party. Copenhagen is a cycling city and boasts over 350 kilometers of dedicated bike paths that are built slightly higher than the rest of the city's roads. There are more bikes than cars in Copenhagen and that encourages yet more people to do more by bike. Queen Margrethe of Denmark rides bikes and the Crown Prince Frederik is often spotted taking his kids around town in a cargo bike. He even took part in a 100-kilometer ride earlier this month called the Tour de Storebalt, Lycra and all. The country is rather flat and has an estimated 12,000 kilometers of bike paths. So why wouldn't you get around by bike? Speaking of the Queen, Denmark is a monarchy. Queen Margarete, who married a French count called Henri in 1967, was crowned in 1972. She was only 31 years old at the time. And this year, she celebrates 50 years on the throne. The first king of Denmark was Gorm the Old in 900. His son was Harald Bluetooth Gormson, and he introduced Christianity to the country, and that is still the predominant faith. The Church of Denmark is Protestant, and about 75% of Danes are members, although only 3% of Danes regularly visit a Sunday service. Copenhagen is known for having some of the most acclaimed restaurants in the world. Noma has been voted the world's best restaurant several times and most recently in 2021, topping a 50-long list with fellow Copenhagen restaurant Geranium in second place. These restaurants hold three Michelin stars, the highest accolade a restaurant can have. René Retzepi, Noma's chef, is passionate about foraging his ingredients and cooking according to the seasons. He is a chef of the new Nordic cuisine movement, where ingredients are local and flavours fresh and, well, mm, 
well, Scandinavian. Noma offers three menus at different times of the year, with seafood season from January to June, vegetable season during the summer, and game and forest in the wintertime. On this year's ocean menu, we see dishes like crab soup served in the shell, and an eclair with oyster emulsion and caviar, or a cod roe waffle with roasted grains and hazelnut oil. We are talking 500 euros for the tasting menu, plus an additional 300 euros for the wines or the fermented juices for the non-alcoholics. Add some water, maybe some cheese and a coffee, and you should not be surprised to leave the door about a thousand euros poorer. Despite these prices, it's incredibly hard to get a reservation at Noma. I wonder if they already booked a table for Christian Prudhomme, the big boss of the Tour de France, on the eve of the Grand Départ. So we've been we've sat here that long. Right, cheers, Joe. Say so we've been sat here that long that the food's getting cold. We're going to round this podcast up because it's getting awfully long, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Nerd nugget. What have we seen, Ronan? We've been around the pits past three, four days. Because believe it or not, the teams turn up probably about five days prior to the race kicking off. We we arrived Monday, hit the team hotels Tuesday, and they were already underway getting bikes ready. They drove, well, EF had drove 30 hours from Barcelona to get here. It was a long old trip for them. It sure was, but uh, they brought some colourful bikes along with them, which I guess uh, brightened it up for them. Um, but anyway, that, that aside, uh, we've seen quite a lot of new stuff at this Tour de France. Um, today is June 30th, as we're recording, and that has been the day that I have been dreading for a couple of weeks now, as every new press release that came through started with embargo date June 30th <laughs> and I realised more and more and more uh, new launches new product launches were going to happen today top of which was the likes of the new Trek Madone um, the new Specialised three new helmets from Specialised I only knew of two coming until yesterday when we found it but a new time trial helmet from Specialised and also new Scott Foyle of course, yesterday we had a 105 DI2 group set announced, but we won't be seeing that at the Tour de France. We're, you know, very much most of the teams here using 12-speed Jure's DI2. Israel Startup Nation, as we've seen today, or Israel Premier Tech, as they're now known, as we've seen today, still using 11-speed Jure's, which I don't really think will hamper them too much. Really, <laughs> they should still be, they should still manage to get through on such antique equipment at this stage. <laughs> but um, apart from that, it's just, you know, it's it's really been a tour for sort of new kits and you know limited edition kits or one-off kits for the Tour de France now if you want to see all this it's all over on the website we've, there, we've there really covered is it too all. much there really is too much to go through and what the time that you've given me here now but we do have a dedicated Tour de France nerd alert podcast coming up next week with all the tech um, from both the build-up to the tour and then of course from tomorrow's time trial where we will actually see Basically, everything we've seen so far is what the teams have wanted to, to see. What we see at the time trial tomorrow is what they actually want to use. Uh, and the same again on Saturday. Um, so that, that'll, it really, really starts, much like the race, the tech sort of starts tomorrow. As, as, as busy as today was, tomorrow is the real, the real big day as, as far as I can see. Now, tech-wise, are you into it all? And how much do you think uh, things have changed since the days when you were racing how much has it affected the racing I love it this question because everybody thinks that you you raced and everything was in black and white 
you know, it was so, Peugeot about they had a black and white jersey so so you know when you're on a pro bright team this stuff is as, is, is, is as good as it gets yeah. and you get all the prototype stuff and, and all the all the you do all the testing you know so the little guys from Japan come over and take a mold of your feet and go away and you never see your shoes again but somebody else has got them um, so all that stuff and happens throughout the year as you and so as you go along so new stuff comes along and then you get to the tour and you get a new suitcase full of shiny new things and you think whoa Christmas has come early and you, and you love all that stuff even though you know you look back and it's you know 40 years 30 40 years you know ago and, and you look at the picture and you think how crap was that <laughs> but that's as good as it you know that's as good it's the equivalent of forming the one stuff you know at the time it's as good that as was, it gets that was the cutting edge tech it, it, it's what was available you know only to pro riders you know we would get kit that was never sold but we would test it you know we um you would get tires which lasted 10 kilometers never sold to the public you know so you get all that stuff and you just love it because it's when you you go to the start and you look at the other guys you know shoes bikes whatever and you think I want that and it doesn't matter if you've got Campagnolo or Shimano you want the other one (laughs) you just do because you you know because the stuff you've got is familiar the grass is always green on the other side so you look at it and you stand there and you go well, that's the reason they're better than me, you know, because you won't admit to yourself that that, you know, that the rider next to you is stronger, faster, or, you know, healthier. You just think oh, they've got better stuff than me. Why haven't we got that? And it goes, you know, so you take it to helmets and stuff, and quite often at the tour you would, you know, the masking tape comes out, you know, so you've got somebody else's equipment because you want it, not not because it's better, but just because you want it. It's, it's a bit like with your wife or your girlfriend and you go past a shop and it's got a sale on and they always go in and buy something <laughs> just because it's on the sale they actually want it but you don't need it and as a bike rider you have that same mentality that you want what everybody else you might have the shiniest thing you know the latest thing and then you look at somebody else's stuff and you go well that looks good because you're familiar with what you've got but yeah the, the tour is great for just all that new stuff comes and you like a kid at Christmas yeah, and then halfway through the tour more new stuff comes <laughs> because you know because you're actually doing the testing quite often so there's always a steady improvement and you know the jerseys you know instead of putting the, in the stitching on the inside it becomes on the outside and you know and the, the legs get longer the legs get shorter or you know they, they change the neck because the neckline because it's going are we to talking about the riders or the kit here the kit yeah <laughs> and the riders get thinner as they go on so you know in, in terms of adapting the skin suit to the speed suit to you know to your your shape you know you, you change slightly in shape but throughout the tour so then so you tend to because the, the the workload is so big and so massive you know you you, you your muscle size slightly gets bigger so and if, you know so if you do the measurements at the start and the measurements at the end if you if you run the kind of ascendancy you you have an improvement in you know in kind of circumferences and stuff I get a feeling this podcast could go on and on and on, but we've got we've got you people coming back to a, for a few other episodes later on in the race, haven't we? You have, yeah. Excellent. That makes me very happy. <laughs> right, I think we'll round it up today. We've like looking at the clock. This one's a long one. We hope we hope people have got long commutes at the moment. We hope we, we hope you're stuck in traffic so you can hear the end of this. It's been I've, I've really enjoyed today's. 
I hope you have too. There's more coming as daily podcasts from now until the end of the women's, the, the, the Tour de France Femme avec Zwift. So you've probably got like nearly five weeks of it, us shouting at you on a daily basis. You're supposed to keep the listeners listening, not scare them away, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you for listening. Thank you, uh, kind people, for joining the podcast. And until tomorrow, enjoy the tour.